Vegepreneur. Is that something we want to call ourselves? I don't know. I was wondering. Just open the Dollar Vegepreneur Club if you do want to support the podcast. Head out to GP Powered on Instagram. Click in the link in the bio and you'll be able to do that there. Again, welcome back to another episode of the GP Powered Podcast, the podcast for vegan entrepreneurs who want to change the world and build a mass movement around what they believe in. I'm your host, Oliver Zurgis. And without further ado, I'd love to be able to present to you our guest today, Claire Mann, who is an Australian-based psychologist, an existential psychotherapist, and a best-selling author, a speaker, and a communications trainer. I mean, talk about someone that has so much to bring when it comes to understanding the way our minds work in different social positionings. She just released her new book, Vistopia. You have to pick it up. If you're anyone struggling with that initial barrier of overcoming the existential crisis that comes with becoming a vegan just because we have no support system, when you think about it, statistically, we're like one 2% of we're generous vegans in the entire world. I mean, it gets under your skin and it really tatters with anything that you're undertaking. So inside this episode, inside her book, more importantly, she's really going to dive deep into some tangible tips that you could start applying to not only put on your own oxygen mask, but really help other people with their personal development growth and really inspire that group that you always inspired. Again, we're not attacking non-vegans per se. We're against the ideology of carnism. And as our organizer, the Cupid Truth, says so beautifully, non-vegans are just future vegans. Without further ado, enjoy this episode with Claire Mann. Make sure that you write down and take notes on whatever you pick up on that you think that you can apply. You always will learn more by writing things down and applying them. What I believe is it could be so easy for us young entrepreneurs to look at everything that you've accomplished and not find any way to relate to you just because you have so much credibility, so much experience, and so much value to bring. Are you able to take us back to day one when this all started for you? Any aha moment that really got you started on your journey? Sure. Well, I've been a psychologist nearly 30 years, actually, and I haven't been vegan all that time, um, although I did give up meat in 1979. It took me a, a little while later, as it does many people, to, to find out really what's going on and, and make that transition. And like all vegans, people say, I wish I knew then what I know now. So our important thing now is to step up, of course. But if we look back um, 30 years, yes, indeed, I came from a family that constantly asked questions that were very philosophical, had quite an open mind when it came to examining all sorts of issues from religion to politics to education and a mother with a very open mind who always tried to look at the other side of things whenever she saw a problem or had a conversation she'd always say well let's look at the other person's point of view so I guess psychology was a big part of my life and although I'd left school at 16 and went into banking <laughs> which was clearly not the, the the thing for me I went back and I, I had to get the qualifications of course to even enter university, which I did at 23, and then just went down that route of generally studying psychology and then moving into organizational psychology, more the world of work. But of course, people, whether they're at home, work, out on the streets doing activism, we're all at life. So that's what really interests me. One thing that really strikes out to me is your conviction, not only as an entrepreneur, but as a vegan. Are you able to share with us any specific moment um, in your earlier days where you really stood up for something where most people would have just left it untouched or would have just ran away? 
Mm. Absolutely. There's so many I can actually think of. But I remember there was a pivotal point in my life when I made a decision that perhaps a lot of people wouldn't have made. And based on actually both of my parents saying that you must do the right thing, that you see other people's points of view, you ask lots of questions, then you weigh it up and you actually look at what is right. And that for them was about moral progress and integrity and just being ethical and kind. And I'll share a story with you, if I may, Oliver. When I was eight years old, I was playing in a park that was pretty normal for the kids of my age. And my older brother, who's 10 years old, was meant to be looking after myself and my sister. I'm not sure where she went. Maybe she went off with a friend. But I remember being on my own in a park that was very near to our home. And there was like a big sort of uh, deserted moat area there with a sort of concrete building in it. Lovely place for kids to play hide and seek. And for some reason, I was passing there. And all of a sudden, I heard a sound I will never forget. It was a sound of an animal in pain, this piercing scream. And I can't even remember thinking about it. Um, there was an immediate reaction to go and do something. And I just remember running towards the source of the pain, which, of course, a lot of people probably would look in the other direction. And I ran down through this sort of moat area up the side stairs. To, there were a lot of lads laughing and joking and egging somebody on. There's an interesting phrase, egging someone on. It's part of our language, isn't it, gosh? And ask, encouraging someone to, what I then saw was to be very cruel to, a, to an animal. And I pushed through the crowd of boys, probably 15 boys or so, turned around to look back into this small shelter. And I saw this small dog whose leg had been severely twisted and forced into the park bench. And the more he was struggling to escape, the more his, he was in danger and his hip would probably become dislocated. And so I rushed through, I released the dog, did the thing in the right direction. The dog ran away, but I remember this feeling, which I've recognized over many years, that comes from somewhere in the pit of my stomach and comes way up through my chest and throat of absolute rage and injustice. And I remember turning around to this huge crowd of boys, this eight-year-old child with these boys, 15, 16, probably 17, and I yelled, how dare you? Don't you ever do that again? And I don't remember how I got away. Um, I don't remember there being any tussle or any danger specifically. But I went home and I told my parents. And bless them, they held back all their fears for their eight-year-old daughter who could have been in a dreadful situation in an isolated place like that. And I explained to them what I'd done. And my father said, you did the right thing. You stood up for someone who could not stand up for themselves. And it was unjust and it was cruel and you did the right thing. However, I wonder if we could talk about your safety. <laughs> but I remember that experience, Oliver, and it was very pivotal. But it was that feeling, that sense within me that I've carried throughout my life. And it's like a sort of internal moral compass that is so visceral. And when I see that injustice, people, animals, planet... I feel compelled to do something. I think it's very easy to take this story and look at yourself as someone that is very grounded and convicted of your internal moral compass, like you said beautifully. Are you able to share with us any specific internal struggle that you really had to deal with and overcome? Obviously, I've had all the normal things that life brings up for all of us in relationships and what do I do with my life? Um, do people like me? <laughs> do I like myself? All these sort of struggles. But 
because I went back to studying later and I was 23, I had a huge sense of inferiority, really. And I remember in the first term of, of starting to study psychology, I had this huge self-consciousness that everyone else knew what they were doing. They had gone through the normal school system to 18 to get the appropriate qualifications to get into university. And, but I hadn't. I'd done a home study course after working since I was 16. And I felt this huge sense of I'm going to get caught out. And I think that's a sense that a lot of people have. And I had a very kind lecturer who sat down with me and I said, how can I possibly write a, an essay? Um, surely I have to know the whole sort of information and he said well, it's not like that it's like little building bricks you don't need to know the whole body of knowledge um, I'm asking you to do this essay let me show you how to digest these materials let me teach you how to study and that very kind approach by him sort of gave me the skills and I was able then to move forward but I remember the real struggle of and I think a lot of people feel it throughout their lives what we call the imposter syndrome I am not come from the right background or the right family or the right environment and someday someone's going to catch me out. And I felt that very early on in my life. And I think those experiences to, and then through my 20s, gathering that sort of confidence in 30s and that certainly didn't really happen. And I really encourage people now, and I say to them, I've been a psychologist for so many years, behind closed doors, people's biggest fears sometimes is that they're not good enough. Um, and I say to people, so if you're feeling like this in your job, in your home, in your workplace, um, that you're not good enough, it's we want to belong. We want to be OK. And don't think the whole world is out there being OK. It'd be the best you can be. And then you give an invitation to other people to shine. It's very reassuring to hear that also you were struggling with um, internal dilemmas, internal conflicts, just because I f it's easy to idealize um, anyone who's made it, anyone who is currently reaping the fruits of their labor. So just hearing that from you brings a new wave of hope, I feel, at least for myself. Are you able to share any specific tips, any specific set of actions that you took to overcome these internal struggles? Yes. Well, I went through a huge amount of personal development. Um, I think one of the best trainings I ever had was sitting with the, the pain and frustration of the human condition was to go through my own therapy. Um, and in my 20s, I certainly sought out counselling. But later on in my, so I went through that for many years just to, to deal with, you know, what is life really all about? You know, who am I? Um, why do I feel like this? And I wholeheartedly champion that sort of approach. But then later when I was studying to be a psychotherapist, I've studied to be a psychologist and went back because I really need to be able to look at more philosophically at what is this all about. And I went back for four years from Australia to the UK and retrained as a psychotherapist. Now, I'll just put a little proviso on that is it's in Australia. If you say you're a psychotherapist, people go, oh, that's very nice. You could have done a two week course in England. Of course, we come in America. You, we come from a different background where that's a very intense training. But in England, when I studied there, I had to go through four years of weekly therapy. And I asked myself, well, I haven't really got problems now. I'm, tra I'm training to be a therapist. Why do I need to be in therapy? But I can say really is I only can I can take my clients as far as I've gone myself in many ways if I it was a transformational experience to to examine my life um, and look at what am I really all about how do I judge people how do I see through this veil and 
have this hold this possibility that we really don't know a lot of what's really going on. We can interact and share things and co-create things. But instead of saying, this is how the world is, that's how you are, let's be normalized. It was a very philosophical approach. So a lot of personal development. Um, I've always invested in uh, training for my skills. And I've been hungry for learning, I guess. And I encourage people to do that throughout their lives. But the thing you were saying a moment ago, Oliver, about that fear of success and things, I found it in my own life and I found it in countless others. We will only go as far as we believe we're capable. We will only, if we don't believe we're good at relationships, we don't tend to attract good relationships. If we say, oh, I could only go far, so far in my job, even though consciously we want to do that, and we almost get there, and we almost get that increase, and we almost get that position, and then something happens. And we kind of put it down to bad luck. Writers like Freud and Jung, I don't go along with everything they say, but they've made a huge contribution to tell us that we, how we feel on the inside will get mirrored on the outside. It's, like the, it's always been the law of attraction, I guess. And so I say to people who want to make a real change in the world is you have to work on yourself first. You have to be the invitation for change. What you see going on the outside is is mirroring a lot of what is going on in all the human beings on this earth. So when we change that, we resonate with a different energy and then different things sort of come into reality, I guess, with some action, of course. Are you able to share any specific set of actions that you took to overcome that initial set of barriers? For example, would you meditate half an hour a day? Would you set some affirmations early morning? Or would you even take a, a five minute, 10 minute walk uh, before your day started? What exactly did you go about uh, during your self-development phase? Sure. Um, all of those, I guess. <laughs> but one thing that stands out in my mind is I've been doing yoga for 30 years. Do I go to yoga classes every week? No. I taught myself that if I it's to choose what how could I do yoga on a regular basis throughout my life without having to have external influences or pressures or an aching back to do it. And I remember someone telling me, habit is memory of the body. So if you teach your body to do something regularly, then it will become unusual and you'll feel out of sorts if you don't do it. A wonderful example of that is cleaning our teeth. Most people have been taught to clean their teeth twice a day and they may go to bed, they may be almost asleep and they suddenly remember they didn't do it and they bounce out of bed and go and clean their teeth. Why? Teeth aren't going to fall out is because it's a memory of the body. And so I thought, well, if what can I do that will regularly allow me to do yoga but not give me any excuses like I haven't got time, I can't drive there, there's no parking, I haven't got a big enough slot is to do it at home. And so I did a lot of yoga classes. I bought some videos and I taught myself if I could do 10 minutes at least four times a week, I could keep that up because it wasn't too big a goal. It was enough that maintained flexibility in my body. And then periodically I could go to classes to ensure I'm in the right position. But I've actually kept that up for nearly 30 years because it feels unusual if I don't do it. And so if I'm in a hotel room or I'm traveling, I have no excuse not to do it. But we can do that with lots of things. Now, I do meditation. I do long dog walks. I be out in nature. I eat a whole food plant-based diet you know, with all the other stuff as well, of course, is it's choosing each person if they can choose what is it is that is going to ground me every day because the world is changing out there. 
there's constant challenges. And for people that have opened their eyes to wanting a more conscious world, there's huge challenges. Is it getting darker? Are people more selfish? If you can every day have this sanctuary within yourself, a place that you can return to that grounds you. For me, it's doing some yoga. I now do meditation. I do tend to do guided visualizations and vision a world that I want to create. And I try to prepare my body in a way that emotionally feels as if I'm already in that place now. And that's what I teach to a lot of people who say, you know, will the world ever change? And I say, the more we focus on the negativity, we're feeding that energy. And actually, science is catching up with this more intuitive, spiritual way of looking at the world and, and showing us that the outer truly is the inner. Um, concepts like entrainment. I don't know if you've heard that term, um, Oliver. Nope, never heard of it. No. Now, this is enormously inspiring to people who really say, oh, we've got to change everybody in the world for us to have this amazing world. It's not actually true because most people follow. <laughs> most people out there are doing lots of things they don't really want to do. They are gone on this trajectory of there's competition and there's greed and we've got to be better than other people as opposed to collaboration and kindness and there's enough for everybody. So, but most people are, are not choosing that. They're just going along with it because, well, that's how the world is. In, and you're going to love my, you think I'm a historian when I actually even claim the date here, but I recently did a video for um, my new book about this, and I write about it in, in the Vistopia book. It's called Entrainment. So, in 1665, a researcher called Christian Huygens in Europe, and I think it was Switzerland, but I, my memory doesn't allow me to confirm that, he set up a number of old grandfather pendulum clocks in one room. And you can imagine hundreds of them where all the pendulums were going at a different um, vibration and movement. And over time, they're all sort of the pendulums are going all different directions. Over time, they all entrained and resonated in synchrony with each other. Now, these are inanimate objects. Now, it's called the process of entrainment, where two oscillating bodies start to fall into rhythm over time. It's the same in physics, in chemistry, biology, architecture, astronomy, but also in society. At the moment, people have been entraining to the darkness and the greed and the competition. Vegans, for instance, are on the other side saying, look, you know, we, we sh we're, we're anti-species. We want kindness to animals. We shouldn't be eating them. We shouldn't be cruel. Look at what's happening to Mother Earth. The more we entrain over to that, and that's why we're seeing this massive exponential growth in veganism and plant-based living, because the pendulum is we're starting to swing it in the other direction. And a lot of people are starting to entrain over there. And it's as if we reach a critical point, and then there's a tipping point. And then people start to entrain with this new way of being. We see celebrities, we see actors, we see people just turning into living their lives differently. I'm coming across young people, children across the world who wake up one day, see a cartoon or something. And they, I remember somebody watching The Simpsons. And in the cartoon, the um, somebody brought a dead reindeer on the, and put them on the table and said, that's for dinner. And the mother said, how can you do that? My daughter's vegetarian. And this young person who's talking to me on the phone said, I looked at that. I sat in the garden for an hour and I thought, well, I'm only 12 years old. I would never eat a reindeer. So why would I eat any other animal? And they actually became vegan. They'd never heard the term vegan. But what's happening there is it, it's, that person is starting to entrain. They don't even need to hear the words about what this is about. And this is really exciting because if we want to change the world, we need to focus on the positive. We need to resonate with the energy 
and actually create and vision a world we want to create and also experience that in our bodies and then go out and actually share the truth. I hate to leave you on a cliffhanger, guys and girls, but again, I want to invite you to take 15 seconds and write down anything that you've learned inside this episode. Really write it down, take the time to find a way to apply it to better your life and grow the community. Again, we have the more obligation as entrepreneurs, as vegepreneurs, to take massive action and inspire other people. If at any time you do want to pick up Claire's book, Vistopia, I promise you, it will give you a tremendous return on your investment, not only for your personal growth, but also for yourself to allow you to inspire the people around you. Make sure that you click on the description down below and tell her where to ship the book. Without further ado, see you on the other follow-up episode with Claire Mann. Remember the five-second rule? If you can do it in five seconds, in five minutes, <laughs> more than five-minute rule, just do it now. Get it over with. Get it out of your mind so you can really focus on what's most important. Peace out.